This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Farm So Hard Podcast. I'm your host today, Jim Pruitt, aka FarmD in the ED, and I have another special episode for you guys. This is something that's going to be very different than we've done before, and we're kind of transitioning to just talking to different pharmacists. Now we're getting other individuals involved and in seeing how pharmacy impact their care. So this episode today is going to be rapid sequence intubation from the sky, or RSI from the sky, caring for intubated patients as a flight nurse. And I have probably one of the most influential nurses, paramedics, future uh, CRNAs in the world right now. So please go (laughs) ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Everett Moss. I'm hailing from Atlanta, Georgia, ATL in the house. Uh, My background is a firefighter paramedic that started off in the streets of Atlanta. I went on to become a paramedic expanded my knowledge in the medical field and wanted to keep climbing. So I transitioned from being a firefighter paramedic into a full-time role as a flight paramedic. Um, From there, I went on to nursing school and worked in the ER, ICU, and a couple of other areas, and also finished off my flight time as a flight nurse. That's wonderful. So I always ask everyone, what made them go into their field? So what made you initially go from being a paramedic? What made you want to be going to nursing? Well, honestly, man, just spending time as a medic on the truck and going into the hospitals and seeing the continuation of care. I wanted to expand on that knowledge because my time with the patients were short. Uh, Additionally, I got a chance to meet some advanced practice professionals working in the area of anesthesia, and that grew my desire to move uh, upward, so to speak, in the industry. And as a medic, I spent some time on the transport unit with Children's Healthcare. So they wanted us to fine tune our innovation skills. So I had the opportunity to practice my innovations in the OR uh, at Children's Healthcare. And from there, man, it just really uh, grew that desire. And I started putting my efforts into going to nursing school so that I could become a CRNA. I didn't stay on that course the entire time. I kind of, you know, went off and worked in the ER and uh, I didn't really want to jump through some of the hoops, so to speak, to get to the CRNA goal. But after spending some time in some other areas, gaining some great experience, I realized that that was still my passion. And here I am pursuing that goal. That's wonderful, man. It's so cool that you had that background for paramedic nursing. And then you combined those and took a different route with, with being a flight nurse. And that still will be able to assist you as you transition to your advanced training. So what made you want to go into being a flight nurse? Because that is a very different route and it is really cool and something that most people don't understand. So man, as a, as a man, it's, it's everything kind of built from that foundation and EMS. And I remember being at Grady Memorial as a medic and EMT student. And seeing the folks come in in their flight suits, and I call them the adult onesies, and 
you know, everybody was in awe of this flight crew. And I'm like, man, that is what I need to do. I don't really know what all they do, but I want to do that. And so I started pursuing what it took to become a flight paramedic. And I just learned so much about ventilators, learned much about the RSI process, and just overall uh, more critical care and advanced care. And uh, from there, man, I just decided that that's what I enjoyed and that's what I wanted to do. And quite naturally, I mean, it's not that as a flight medic working in a role with a flight nurse, there's definitely a compensatory difference. Um, But I also wanted to have the knowledge that both crew members held. And the only way to truly get that critical care knowledge that the flight nurse has is to work as a critical care nurse. Uh, So that's what caused my transition. And I enjoyed that role and being able to fly as a medic and a nurse, because once I got the time to fly as a flight nurse, I was able to work both roles. You know, I I could come in and cover a medic shift or a nurse shift. Uh, And it really was a joy for me to be able to function in both capacities. That's wonderful, man. And I, I notice a lot of the times that when you transition these different roles, you, you obtain additional qualifications or different certifications. And, you know, just like your name, I, I see as soon as you say after RN, it's like alphabet soup after it. So what are the <laughs> qualifications and like certifications that are like required to be a flight nurse? So, man, of course, I, I've been I've been tagged as the alphabet soup guy, um, but it's really been driven by my desire for professional development. You know, once you get into an industry, there's not a whole lot of ways to validate your knowledge uh, that can be quantitative and qualitative, so to speak. So since I've been in the industry, any area that I work in, I go ahead and validate that knowledge. Uh, In the flight world, the only requirements to get into the arena is to be a flight nurse for three to five years in the ER or ICU. In my personal opinion, having a combination of the two makes you much more well-rounded. Once you've been in the industry for, in most cases, a year, they would like for you to get some type of advanced certification. That advanced certification can come in the form of a certified emergency nurse, a critical care RN, or a certified flight RN. The company that I worked for, they actually paid an incentive if you had the flight certification specifically. Um, So, of course, as a person who's all about professional development and wanting to validate that knowledge, uh, I already had my certified emergency nurse and my critical care, but I decided to go ahead and get my certified flight RN as well. That's cool, man. And I think that a lot of times what we're doing now in pharmacy is kind of helping to kind of follow the same route you guys have done in nursing. And we have, you know, additional certifications that you, you require. And now we're lucky to have an emergency medicine certification. We have a critical care, which has been kind of the, the backbone of the history of clinical pharmacy. So we have trying to took some of the things from you guys and, and apply it to ourselves as well. So you can work on it very briefly, but can you give some examples how your experience as an idiot ICU nurse has assisted you in becoming a, not just a flight nurse, but being a skilled flight nurse? And can you kind of give some like patient examples, some things you've seen before that's kind of helped you now? 
Yeah, definitely, man. Tom is an ED nurse, an ICU nurse, assists the, the flight nurse in being skilled and working at facilities that have a lot going on. I've been fortunate to work at level one trauma centers and busier ERs. So you get exposed to a lot. Being able to see patients uh, go through the RSI, rapid sequence innovation process, is another benefit to working in the ED. Uh, as opposed to the ICU in some cases, because most of the places that I've worked, the emergency physician, um, pharmacy and respiratory and the bedside nurse are all in on the rapid sequence innovation process, as opposed to most of the ICUs that I work in, anesthesia usually comes to the bedside to do the RSI. So it kind of puts you in a behind the scene, so to speak, position to be a part of that process. Uh, so I definitely like the the benefit of being in the ED to truly experience RSI. As far as patients go, um, seeing the failed airway in the ER is another benefit uh, because you see the you you get a chance to have that feeling that adrenaline rush of when the airway is not being secured. You know what do you do next? Um, what is the process when anesthesia finally comes down to see how they manage it? All of that is of a benefit. The other thing, bleeding control. A lot of times when we have patients come to the ICU, they're usually post-surgical and definitely post-ER. So sometimes patients walk through the front door and you have to jump in and, and you know take care of any any excessive bleeding, you know, apply tourniquets and such. Uh, again, that's a benefit of the ER. When it comes to the ICU, that's where I feel like the nurse really gets a chance to experience ventilator therapy and see the ventilator changes. They get a chance to see the x-rays on a daily basis to see how the lungs comply. They get a chance to trend arterial blood gases. Uh, They get a chance to track and trend electrolytes and other lab values on a daily basis. It really brings home the point of how these initial changes that we do in the field can affect the patient's long-term outcome. Uh, So there are huge advantages to working in the ER versus working in the ICU, but I think a coupling of the two really makes you a well-rounded flight nurse. Especially from uh, the drug standpoint, you get to see different things uh, because initially you have bolus in the ER, you have to worry about just the RSI meds compared to when you get to the unit, it's just titration of sedation. And the cool part about, you can talk more about this, but being a flight nurse, you get a combination of both. And it's just really cool to see how at least for me, the nerdy side of me, just looking at how these drugs impact you at different times. And we can kind of go into that standpoint. So you have a patient that you're going to pick up from facility and you actually have to take the airway yourself. What's your go-to induction agent for RSI and can elaborate on, you know, if you have certain ones for different therapies? Okay. So I can't remember the year, but it's been at least three, maybe four years ago, we started carrying ketamine. Once we studied a few trials or reviewed a few case scenarios of the use of ketamine in the induction process, it really became my go-to. Initially, I know that ASNA, the Air and Surface Transport Nurse Association, there was an article around about ketamine uh, and being used in the patients with ICP and the concerns around it. Um, but I think since that time, it has been less of a 
factor or concern unless you knew for a fact that the patient did have, you know, increased ICP was already hypertensive since it could cause an increase in the sympathetic tone. In the industry that I work in pre-hospital, the majority of the cases that we had were more so hypotensive than hypertensive. And in the RSI process, you can knock out the rest of that sympathetic tone. So using ketamine as an induction agent became a very, very popular induction um, choice for most of the flight crew in my area. Um, and so that's, 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 that's been my go-to. We did have other agents that we use, uh, but according to our protocols with the company I work for, ketamine and atomidate were our go-tos. And because, uh, you know, atomidate could have a negative impact on those patients who are already hemodynamically compromised, ketamine became very popular. Absolutely. And then so that's one of the things I'm seeing, I'm very fortunate to work in two ERs. And I see that over the last couple of years, we've seen an increase in amount of patients that's getting RSI in, in the ED with ketamine for the same exact reasons that you're talking about. And I, I'm pretty happy when I, I receive a patient from the flight crew and I ask them, what did you guys use? You guys use ketamine. And, you know, that way I know for at least a short period of time, that patient received some pain component of it as well. And and there's a lot of talk now, and I go back and forth with some of the providers that a lot of the data that showed that ketamine increased ICP was, you know, a lot older. And for the most part, there's been, you know, as you mentioned, studies that said it's not as much of a factor. And there's even been some data that says that actually it has no impact or a decrease in ICP. So that for me has led to me recommending it a lot more than usual. So you have that ketamine and Traditionally, are you guys dosing it like one to two mix per kick? Is that what you guys are seeing? We have IDXS? exactly, exactly, exactly. That was um, our our standard dose for induction was one to two mix per kick. Yeah, and it makes it so easy. You look at the patient and say, "Hey, what do you think this guy weighs?" Or exactly. you picking him up for a facility, <laughs> bam, just hit him with that or double it. So it's so easy to use ketamine. Uh, some of the caveats I always say is just knowing that if your patient's already two twenty over, you know, two twenty, right, over, right, you know, right. <laughs> consider other options. And um, uh, another component is that it's just if you don't have additional agents on board, if you if, or if you're not ready. Don't just slam ketamine in and think that you're going to be just like, oh, get this a a minute or two and then I can do it. If you're going to do it like rapid IV push, I I try to, you know, when I'm giving induction meds in the ED, try to push it a little slower, like over like 30 or so seconds just to kind of not cause a laryngospasm or Mm -hmm. kind of go from there. Have you had any problems with like secretions that come along with ketamine? Not in the short term. Mm -hmm. Um, So most of the patients that I'm RSI, you know, most areas that I flew in, we had at most a 40 minute transport time. And again, that, that was uncommon to have a 40 minute transport time. Uh, Usually we had a transport time of about 20 to 30 minutes. So in that short time frame, I never noticed an issue with secretions um, given, given the short distance. And again, between atomidate and ketamine, I would say that that's probably 80 to 90% 90% of the usage of um, induction agents when it comes to intubation. So we kind of mm-hmm. talked about that. And so what would be your go-to paralytic? Because there's a lot of talk about this, and especially when we receive the patients in the ED. 
So again, man, when I first started in the industry, I was a Sustainacoline fan. Like, you know, it was short term uh, duration. It was quick onset. And it was just, in my mind, the best paralytic to use. Well, after really thinking about the RSI standpoint from the flight nurse pre-hospital vantage point, when we make a decision to RSI somebody, it's because they are either not ventilating and or oxygenating adequately. And that doesn't change. You know, they're not going to miraculously start ventilating and oxygenating better somewhere in our process. So a short duration doesn't change the outcome. When I finally started looking at it from that perspective, Rocky Ronium became my go-to. Absolutely. Simply because it has much less side effects um, and, and it's a overall, in my opinion, better paralytic uh, for my patient population. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna so, upset some ED docs there. Some people, are just, <laughs> oh, you're gonna, but I, I completely agree. It's like back you go back and forth with it, man. Yeah, and so well, here's the thing from the flight nurse perspective. All right, I think about it. I get on the scene. I'm gonna go ahead and RSI this patient. I having my patient paralyzed for a longer duration is better for from my viewpoint. All right, because we're already in a dynamic environment where there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of moving parts and there's a a lack of certain control. Uh, So there are times where, you know, arguably the sedation may wear off quicker than you realize. You know, you may be in the middle of going from a baseball field uh, all the way to a parking lot while you're trying to get this patient loaded up on the helicopter. And having my patient adequately sedated and paralyzed just helps with my overall management of making sure my patient is compliant with my ventilator and not uh, a lesser chance of self-extubation. Um, so that's that's my viewpoint as a flight nurse. You know, what they do once we get across those hospital doors is is totally up to you. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just definitely interesting just to see because it's, it's really, when you look at the evidence, there's... Again, it's been tons of meta-analysis and tons of different things. Are you dosing yours at like the one milligram per kilo as well around that? Yeah. So our protocols gave us the range of 0.6 to 1.2, but quite naturally in the middle of a field at one in the morning, two, three in the morning, remembering one mix per kg and mathematical equations is a lot easier than trying to do 0.6 to 1.2. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of protocols recommend that 0.6 and you're going to get to see a lot more of that because it's more from the anesthesia days. But from what what I've been seeing in the ED, that one to 1.2 make per kick may be better off, you know, as far as uh, being able to secure the airway and uh, quicker onset. So that's my recommendation has always been to go on a higher side of the, the dosing range. And I've seen when we're looking at the data, once you compare that one to one point two mic per kick, I've seen no difference in efficacy as far as um, securing the airway on, on first attempt when looking at most of the studies. So we've talked about the induction and the paralytics, and for the most part, that's usually what I see coming as well. But after you get this patient all packed up, get them with you, what's going to be your best way to sedate these patients while traveling? Well, again, uh, because we usually carry like a five hundred milligram vial of ketamine without wasting other medications uh, for sedation, 
we would continue the patient on ketamine doses uh, for sedation. Uh, and the other thing that I personally liked about ketamine is that it also had that analgesic effect as well. Um, so most times we would continue ketamine uh, on our patient. And the only other thing that we would add in from time to time based off, you know, the patient's vitals and how they responded to the treatment uh, was a, a dose of fentanyl. Uh, but for the most part, ketamine became the go-to. Uh, aside from that, we carried Bursed and we carried Ativan as well. Uh, but usually if we weren't going with ketamine as an analgesic or sedative, then we would do uh, pushes of Bursed and fentanyl. Absolutely. And one of the things that I, that comes up is a question that I really didn't have before, but just for just for our knowledge, how do you guys like restock those medications once you kind of get down to us? Because there are certain places that you can restock it with the, the ED or ICU you're going to, or there are some places that have their own supply. So just for my knowledge, where do you guys like, is it from your own supply from your base or is it a way you can kind of uh, transfer that to the um, place that you're going? Well, we had a pharmacy that we utilize to stock our meds at our base. We actually, each base has like a Pixis. Um, it was actually called, I think, a Cubex. And we kept a supply of medication in those, in that Cubex within the base. And it's similar to the ones at the hospital. You have to have fingerprint ID and you also have to have a witness. Uh, so whenever we would waste, um, we would have two clinicians sign off on the waste and we would restock out of that Cubix. Cool. That was always a question. I was like, where are they, where are they getting these medications? Because they're just coming from God knows where and flying over and it's right. like everything <laughs> ready to go. It's like you're really personifying like the, the Superman or Superwoman, you know, they come with meds, they fly, they do everything. <laughs> right, right. All right. Yeah, so, yeah. so no, I was just saying, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it goes. There are some agencies around, uh, more so ground agencies that I'm familiar with, um, but also uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. You know, they have their own helicopters, so they are able to utilize the hospital's medications for their stocking and restocking. But oftentimes you have to have that connection between the transport agency and the facility to be able to restock uh, from the facility. Absolutely. But I'm a huge fan of ketamine and I always say that pretty much if you're going anywhere, uh, you can just have that agent and you're going to be good to go. But you've been in the situation for quite a while now. What are some drugs that you wish you had when you're commuting via air? So in the beginning, when I first started flying, we didn't have several items that once I you know, hung up my flight suit, we were then carrying. You know, we started carrying blood products, which was huge for the for the area. Um, then we also started carrying push dose pressers. And again, that was another huge benefit for the, the flight crew that's having to RSI this patient on the side of a road with not a lot of resources. Uh, have we, we started carrying phenylephrine and vasopressin as our push dose pressers. And that was true really a benefit, in my opinion, to what we normally carry. Uh, but honestly, there wasn't a drug that I can recall in the ICU that I wish I had and I didn't have on my helicopter. I mean, when they say that we're like a mobile ICU, that's truly the case. 
uh, we carry just about everything that can get that patient through their first, you know, three to four hours of care right on the helicopter. Yeah, that's phenomenal. One of, and you mentioned something that was pretty interesting that a lot of EDs and ICUs probably haven't been able to use a good bit of, but using push dose vasopressin. I've used it on a, on a few occasions and I was quite surprised at the response that I, I was able to receive, especially due to the fact that it doesn't, uh, it's not, it's not impacted by acidosis like some of the others and push those vasopressin is something that I'm actually trying to study now. And, uh, and for all the listeners out there, please talk to your pharmacist, please talk to your administration about this. But I think that it's something to look into. And I think it's a, a key uh, intervention that may be beneficial uh, when a patient has severe acidosis. And I'm, I'm definitely on, on board when it comes to that. And do you guys have those pre, pre-mixed products already for you? No, actually, we don't. We carried a uh, vial of phenylephrine and we carried a vial of vasopressin. And what we would do is we also carried like a 100 cc bag of um, saline. So we would just go ahead and um, do a quick mix um, into our bag of saline and then draw up our our assigned dose. Uh, we, We didn't do multiple doses for our protocols. We were somewhat restrictive. It was given to us for the purposes of the hemodynamically unstable patient prior to RSI. Yeah, that's phenomenal. So a lot of things are very challenging with thinking about transporting these patients, just the space that you have. Like I I keep thinking to myself, like if a patient gets too rowdy up there, they're not sedated. They're going to like self-exhibate and fall out of the helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) So I I know there are some challenges that that I see in my head, but what are some of the challenges for caring for an intubated patient as a flight nurse that most people won't uh, think of? Uh, you you named it, man. For the most part, the biggest challenge is the space. I mean, you think about it, even in these hospital rooms, when a patient is coding or near coding, you literally have to put people out of the room, right? Because it's just so many people coming to the bedside trying to help. Well, in the helicopter, <laughs> you don't have one space for all of those people, and it's already a tight space. So when you have a patient that you know, let's say you lose a line because of whatever reason, or or let's, what happens more times than not is when we get to a scene and get in the back of the ambulance and package our patient, or when we get to a local ER and we package our patient in the ER, what happens is sometimes from ambulance to helicopter or ER to helicopter, a line may get, be lost, a IV may come out, any number of things could happen. And if it's not detected in the move, you detect it in air. And once you detect it, now we have to try to figure out how to gain additional access while we're flying, you know, 2,000 feet in the air um, up 75, 85. And that's pretty challenging in the space that we have. And then you bring in the, the other elements. Let's take into consideration uh, the time of day. If it's three in the morning, it's pretty dark in the aircraft. Now we have lights that we can turn on, but they are only so bright. Uh, I mean, they get bright enough to see what you need to do, but it's so not like being in a well-lit ICU room uh, with plenty of space. And you have two clinicians, you know, working over each other, trying to secure access, one trying to draw up medications, 
one trying to initiate this access and secure it. And those are the challenges that we face. Uh, so it really makes for a good flight crew to really check your lines, check your ET tube, check all of these things prior to moving the patient and then ensuring that they're adequately secured uh, for the move. And then, of course, once we get into the aircraft and we're preparing to take off, uh, we want to make sure we do a good check of our patient to make sure everything is still in place. Uh, but we also have to be vigilant of our surroundings. So even though we're taking care of the patient, we're still having to you know, glance out just to look for other aircraft uh, because that's another dynamic that you, you're faced with when you're flying in a helicopter. There are other aircraft out there that may not be communicated via radio uh, that you may only pick up on radar. So there, there are many challenges to the patient care role when you're a flight crew member. That's that's very interesting. I think to myself how the, the ED always get crap for a patient coming up, coming up to the ICU and there being a bowel movement. It's like, oh, it happened on the elevator. You know, <laughs> it's like, like if that, is that happened? Oh, the patient crap themselves while they're in, in the air. And here, here you go, ED. Here you go. I see you. And <laughs> you'll be fine. Uh, yeah. But, go ahead. You know, I was saying I, I can tell you that uh, <laughs> if a patient uh uh, you know, ha- has some uh, <laughs> a-, a bowel movement in the helicopter. I'm sorry, we're gonna hand it over to you. <laughs> it's gonna be kind of kind of hard to uh, clean it up in the helicopter. Yeah, we d- we don't carry wipes on here. It's a small <laughs> space, so sorry, right. sorry for that. <laughs> only the only the essential. Uh, but right. one, one of the key things, one of the last things I I had to ask is like. There's a lot of times there's just there's some miscommunication, especially for those ED and ICU nurses that never practice in the setting that you are. Um, what are some of the things that you wish that every ED or ICU team could do better for a transition of care of the patient? Uh, something that we just discussed, man, and that's really just trying to come outside of your box for a second and realize the challenges or area that we're coming from. Sure, patient care is patient care, regardless of where you're at. And the ultimate goal is to provide better outcomes for the patients. However, there is several dynamics when it comes to managing the patient pre-hospitally. And you have to provide some buffer for those factors. Uh, When I'm called to a outside facility Um, to transfer this trauma patient from here to there, you know, there's going to be some lapse in information Um, simply because in my mind, I'm going to get all the information that I can that's pertinent to this patient's outcome, but I may miss some of the small stuff because staying here to collect that information is not in my patient's best interest for outcome. Uh, If I'm transferring from a non-trauma hospital to a trauma hospital, typically it's because this patient needs surgical intervention. And I may forget to get a phone number because this patient needs emergent surgery. You know, so it's things like that that sometimes I find that us flight crews are, are, I don't want to say scolded or counseled or uh, whatever the word is, uh, but understand that it's a very, very different dynamic. And we have so many factors that we are considering. The absolutes importance are we're making sure that our patient is medicated appropriately, they have a secure airway, and that 
they're gotten to where they need to be in a timely fashion. And I just ask that all healthcare providers just kind of keep that in mind when they're receiving a report or they're receiving a patient from a flight crew or EMS ground crew, uh, because it's very, it's very challenging in some of the environments that we face. And we don't have all of the resources that are available to the bedside nurse at these facilities that we're delivering to. That's wonderful, man. One of my favorite moments uh, when interacting with uh, a flight crew is when, when they come in and tell the ED team how much ketamine they gave the patient over a period of time. Uh, my, my favorite article, like when I had, a, I had a patient come in, they received like 700 total of ketamine. It was just they induced with it. They, it was a long, longer flight. And one of my, my burn attendings at Grady was like, how much did you give that patient? And I was like, yeah, we gave a total of 700. 700 ketamine? He gave this patient seven. <laughs> <laughs> he just lost his mind there for a second. Like, how do you give someone 700 of ketamine? <laughs> oh, my God. And I remember for the, 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 the next, like, 30 minutes, we went back and forth about, like, he was like, do you know that ketamine can increase the ICP? And I was like, yes, sir. That, that's been reported at some point. But there's also been studies that show, you know, a difference in that. And he's like, what about intraocular pressure? What about, what about the blood pressure? <laughs> and I, it, it was just, you uh, know, my, my questions would have been, did they have ICP? Were they hypertensive? <laughs> you know, because if they weren't, then, I mean, you know, I, I don't know, man. I, I get it, you know. It's not something that's familiar to a lot of people, um, but you know, looking at the protocols, depending upon the time frame that they transported, you know that that may not have been too too, too far. Finished. Yeah, so I've and, heard some horror stories though. Yeah, and I, I just think to myself when when we got the patient, he was comfortable, and that was like the key. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Just comfortable, and he had like major major burns, major burns. You know, had all these things. The patient got fluids. The patient was comfortable. The patient was tolerating the event, and I was just like, "Wow, okay." I was just, I just every time you know, flight crew comes in, they told me the dose of ketamine that the patient received. I just like raised my eyebrows and like, "Strong work, strong work." (laughs) This patient has been well taken care of, and they probably didn't have give you guys any problems the entire flight. So, not at all, not at all. All right, but before we close, I kind of want to give you an opportunity to add any additional uh, any additional comments or anything you kind of want to leave the audience with when it comes to you know your career as a nurse, uh, uh, tra- transporting patients via uh, flight, or just the RSI process uh, moving forward. Man, the only thing that I would want to say is one: I appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast. Uh, I think it really helps support the collaborative effort among the healthcare professions. I think in our industry, sometimes we forget that it's not the nurse, it's not the pharmacist, it's not the doctor, it's not the respiratory therapist, it's the team. And that's one thing that flight nursing has really taught me is how to be a true team player. You know, on that helicopter, we have a pilot, we have a flight nurse, and we have a flight paramedic. And one question that I get sometimes from personnel who haven't entered into the realm is, who's in charge? And I always kind of raise my eyebrows, scratch my head when I hear that question, because it's not a matter of who's in charge. Everybody has their role that they play, and the goal is to play that role very well. We want that pilot to be firing on all cylinders on landing and um, flying this helicopter. We want the flight nurse to bring their expertise from the bedside and then 
join those skills with the flight medic who bring those skills uh, from the roadside. And together as a team, we provide a better outcome for this patient. So when there are times like this with this podcast and other opportunities to share knowledge and grow, it truly affects the patient. And that's what we're all here for is to bring about better patient outcomes. And the only way we can do that is through continued collaborative effort. Absolutely. And I definitely appreciate having you on the show. And I really wanted this episode to branch out to what Farm So Hard is about. And I know the name in itself says that we're a pharmacy-based podcast, but I really want to just focus on the safe and effective use of medications and just allowing different practitioners to discuss their experience with medications. And, and I think that then as we move forward with this podcast and with all the things that's going on today, I definitely agree with you that we need to make sure we're together as a team. And I'm so fortunate to practice in two institutions where I'm so, I literally sit beside physicians and nurses, paramedics, uh, patient care techs, phlebotomy, uh, x-ray techs, EKG techs, like I'm right there with them. And the key thing is that we're all working together as a team and we're focusing on providing the best patient care we possibly can. And my role being being a pharmacist is looking at the meds, but I definitely try to emulate some of the the skills and some of the techniques that you guys use and do the, the best I can to assist. So I definitely appreciate you for all of the 19,000 roles that you play right now <laughs> and that you will continue to play. And uh, definitely uh, follow us on Twitter uh, and Instagram. We'll definitely link all those things to the show notes. I have a few things that I can link to the show notes about uh, dosing, about induction agents and paralytics and sedation. So I'll put that out there. Again, thank you guys for coming on. Thank you for coming on to the show. And I'll just like to close out how I always do. Uh, you don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in the ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Thank you. Uh, well, all right. Yeah. I'm just trying to make my mama proud. Uh.